Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, this is Josh Galperin. I am with the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and Yale Law School, and I'm here in the studio today with Francesca Coe. Francesca is, uh, until very recently, was the Director of Campaigns and Strategic Initiatives at the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC. Today, she is consulting with NRDC, working on projects uh, for the Climate Center and for the Policy Center for Policy Advocacy. She's also, in addition to the work she's still doing with NRDC, on the Steering Committee uh, and is a coalition advisor for the Climate Advocacy Lab, is an environmental consultant for the Out Ad Council. You've probably seen the PSAs. She is the president of the Greater Farallones Association and is on the National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council. That's a lot. Did I get everything, Francesca? <laughs> yes. Good. Well, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start based on that long list of things I just I just um, said about your, your work. I want to ask a question that I think is probably important to most of the students who we work with here, and that is how do you manage it all? You know, it's a it's a good question, and I, I think someone once said, if you want something to get done, find a busy person and have them do it. And I think that to the degree that there is something that you're interested in or that you feel passionate about, you end up making time for it. And when, whether it's a cause or an issue or a specific area of study that really resonates for you, the amount of time that you put into it um, from a mathematical point of view feels less than it actually is because you're so focused on the issue. Now, having said that, you know, eventually you will get diminishing returns um, unless you start to prioritize. And eventually, you can get to a point where you can look at where are there synergies, where are there things that I'm doing that can actually act as a fulcrum and be a leverage point to sort of expand the kind of work that you're doing. So you might be doing something once, but it has the benefit of applying to four, three or four or five different things that you're doing. So there must be a few things on the list of projects that you work on now or that you worked on at NRDC that weren't as interesting. So uh, is is the advice, maybe especially for students, the advice that you use those, those fulcrum points, use those templates to help you engage with and be productive on the things that aren't as interesting and therefore seem like they take longer? Yeah, and I, I actually think that, um, you know, I'm not that much older than you, but let's just <laughs> say that I am of a different generation. And when I just was... Just don't call me a millennial. I'm otherwise. not going to. <laughs> but let's just say that I have 10 years on you. So when I was in school and when I was first starting out in the workplace... Um, the idea that I would have the perfect job or do ultimately what my desired goal was, was nowhere on the horizon. Hmm. To just have a job and to work with people who are inspiring and smart, that really was in and of itself the desired outcome. And the work might not have always been super illuminating or seemingly you know, challenging intellectually. But in my opinion, doing the very best that you can, no matter what the work is, no matter how simple the task, no matter how rudimentary it may seem, to me, that was the lesson. Do everything to the best of your ability, plus never say no. You know, ultimately, the answer might be no, but the answer along the way is, let me find out. Let me help you. You know, look at everything as an opportunity. And then when you're showcasing 
your tenacity, your willingness, your enthusiasm. Those are the things that people around you will notice. And then when they need someone for the more interesting, more challenging work, you ultimately will be the one that gets picked. Yeah, that that's terrific career development advice that hopefully we'll get some students to listen to this and actually take this to take this with them when they go into an interview and start start their first job, whether it's the perfect job or not. So speaking of jobs, so we're talking a little bit in the abstract here. Um, I want to go back to NRDC and ask a little bit about the work you did uh, at NRDC, the role you had there. So um, will you just start by telling us a little bit about the role of your work as the director of campaigns and strategic initiatives and sort of what that looked like? Sure, absolutely. And I'll actually take a step back and give you a little history of how I got involved to be on staff at NRDC. I was actually running a mission-based creative and advertising agency. And NRDC, the Climate Center, was a client. And it's a nonprofit, so it wasn't that they were a frequent client or had a lot of discretionary budget to be spending on creative and advertising. But in my relationship with the folks I was working with there, I saw so much great opportunity, both in terms of the kinds of things that they were trying to move forward, the policies, and the opportunity to connect that with communications and messaging, that there were all these opportunities to get people engaged. So my relationship with NRDC started with me being a consultant. Eventually, uh, the previous uh, communications director asked me to come in-house, said, Francesca, you're doing really great work. Will you come in-house? And I was like, absolutely not. That's just going to be too complicated, too difficult. And then at the end of the day, um, after a long recruitment period, I thought to myself, why wouldn't I go work at an institution where the people are the best and the brightest in all of the areas that they work on? And why wouldn't I want to go get firsthand understanding of all of these really interesting disciplines and policies and be able to add value, add something that I had that they needed, which was someone who understood how to translate and distill Mm -hmm. some of these really critical policies into language that makes sense for people who don't have PhDs, who aren't lawyers, so that they can be a part of the conversation. Um, So I think you said that the the advertising firm that was your company. Yes. So did it, did it live on after you went yes, in-house? It, it lives on now. Um, it's called Underground Advertising, and Charlie Cardillo still runs it. Terrific. So, so when, when you're, at, you're now at NRDC, you know, your job is to do this translation of the, of the complex work that they're doing there, whether it's policy work or scientific work. How do you decide – I mean, NRDC does about as much, much variety of environmental work as any group does – How do you decide among the many institutional priorities sort of what you can take on as a major task for communications, for getting into the public? And then, you know, when it's – how do you decide when it's actually ready for the public to learn about it? When you're – when NRDC is developing a policy, uh, a policy argument or doing research on ocean acidification, how do you know when the information is there and it's sort of ready for prime time? So I think there are a variety of different elements in answering that question. And the first thing that I want to say is that all of the work that NRDC does is just critically important. When we decide to take something and elevate it to become sort of more of a public-facing campaign, what folks need to recognize is that is not a value judgment. That doesn't mean that work is more important than the other work that is not being chosen for a public campaign. It just means that that particular body of work is better suited or better aligned to a moment in time 
or to actually what I'm going to be talking about today, connecting with people. If you really want to leverage influence and bring people together, you have to meet people where they are. If we're going to be talking about things that are a little more technical and complicated, like ocean acidification or the management of specific fisheries, you really need people to have a better understanding. Uh, I'll use the example of uh, shark fin banning. You know, for folks, that was just an opportunity to say, Look at these wonderful apex predators. They're beautiful creatures. We don't believe you should be killing them for this wasteful use. You didn't really have to understand all of the science behind it. And that is a moment in time where you can galvanize people who care about the issue. They may not be experts, but there are hundreds or thousands or millions of them echoing a specific message point that you're also carrying And that's what you want to be able to do. You want to be able to inspire people who are already at that conclusion and help move whatever the policy is with the magnification of their voices. So that's that's great. That that makes a lot of sense and makes me wonder, though, is there a different ask? You know, when you're engaging the public, are you asking for something different when you want the public to change their behavior versus when you want the public to influence policymakers? Is is your strategy different depending on the type of ask you're making? Yes. And with any environmental NGO, but especially the work that I did previously at NRDC, there is always a multidimensionality to the communications work. And it begins with who is your target audience and what is the goal of what you're trying to get them to do. So in some instances, you may be, you know, with, for example, the work that's been done on carbon pollution standards and having the EPA put in the nation's first ever limits on carbon pollution coming from power plants. There is a federal law, the Clean Air Act, which it's being implemented under. The various states around the nation need to come forward with their own plans. And so that means the governors need to be on board. So our target may be the governors, but the best way to influence those governors will be with local voices, Mm. residents, business owners, different agencies. And so while the primary target may be a business decision maker or, again, a legislator, you're going to use the people who live there, the moms, the small business owners, whoever else, to say, this is an important issue to us, our community, our families. Please implement a strong, clean power plan for the state of Illinois so that that governor then says, okay, I'm hearing from the public. This is what they want, and I can see there's economic benefits. This is what we're going to deliver to implement for the state of Illinois. So uh, that made me think of a sort of cynical position I've been falling into lately, and maybe you can disabuse me of this, or maybe you'll agree with me and I'll just be a little depressed about it. But uh, in terms of meeting people where they are and and getting people to influence their policymakers, I'm starting to feel like the environmental issues, at least, and I don't think it's just environmental issues, but environmental issues and others are becoming more symbolic issues than actual policy debates. So when you go to Congress or you go to a governor and you say, I want you to do X on an environmental issue. It doesn't matter if X, the policy proposal, is the most conservative policy proposal in the world or the most liberal policy proposal in the world. The The symbolism of an environmental act is just a zero or a one. It's either an up or a down. 
And so you could come and say, here's a conservative idea, maybe cap and trade, for example. And, and a conservative politician or a lot of the public will say, no, it's an environmental issue. We don't want to deal with it. So how do you meet people where they are if where they are is the environment is inherently something that we cannot protect because even the most conservative policy is too much for something we just don't think is important? Well, I think there's a lot there that you have to unpack, first of all. And I think that you have to remember whatever you're communicating and whatever your policy goal may be, you have to think about it in the context of a matrix of time and what else is happening around that decision. Is it a rulemaking? Is it putting a law into place? Is it a ballot initiative? And then look at the context of what do you need to do sort of in the interim, the interim objectives to get to that point. The challenge with environmental issues right now, uh, and we're in the midst, right, of this presidential election, Mm -hmm. is that a lot of the issues that we are focused on really pertain to the sustainability of public health and the quality of life for everyone. This is not a partisan issue. Unfortunately, the issues that we work on sometimes get politicized. And when they're politicized, they become polarizing. Mm-hmm. A- and add to that, and I think there's um, someone here, Dan Kahan, actually right. talks about the communications challenges that the environmental movement faces. Sometimes as an NGO, I talked about the multidimensionality. One of our goals is to increase the number of members, increase the number of donations to sustain our own organization. Mm -hmm. And it may be that we're talking to a group of people who are already initiated and they believe it and they care about charismatic megafauna. And so that for us is low hanging fruit and we need to increase you know, the membership revenues. And so we send them a specific message and we're like, help, save the wolf, save the whale which is a very specific kind of communication. Sometimes when we do that, we're actually alienating other people who might come to the table, who might come to the conversation, but because we're focused on that one goal, uh, again, in this multidimensional spectrum, it's a double-edged sword. We're getting these really motivated folks over here, and we're losing these uninitiated or unaware folks Mm -hmm. over here. And so you have to take a step back and look at, in the long term, what is it that we're trying to do? And as a policy NGO, we are trying to activate people. We are trying to educate people. We are trying to bring people along. So we really need to look at all of those things in the long term, in the larger context, because I think I'm going to answer your question by saying, yes, Sometimes we are turning folks off and alienating them, but that's an opportunity to understand and listen to what their concerns are. Again, going back to let's start with where people are. And if their concerns are such that they're worried about putting food on the table or taking care of aging elders, then we need to start there. We can't start with the Delta smelt and the, you know, white oak bark. So... That actually probably brings us back to the to something you're doing now more more today the climate advo- climate advocacy lab was it climate advocacy or climate action lab climate advocacy Co- lab. okay it is climate advocacy lab good so the climate advocacy lab is I sounds to me from from my understanding of that group is trying to to use this process you're describing specifically focused on on climate and providing information in sort of different tiers or multi-dimensional information the, the depth of which the user can sort of dig in 
based on their own interest level. So can you describe a little more about what the Climate Advocacy Lab is doing and what your role is with them? Sure. So um, the Climate Advocacy Lab has been put together by the Skoll Foundation. And uh, right now, in the environmental movement, there are obviously hundreds of different organizations doing work, advocating on different policies, including climate and energy issues. And to be as effective as we need to be, a lot of these groups are doing public opinion research work so that we can understand what different audiences have in terms of primary motivation, what resonates with them, you know, how much are they willing to pay more for renewable energy on their utility bills, these kinds of things, so that we can go in equipped and armed with the most useful information to be able to connect with them and share with them as they're thinking about their daily lives and their routines and what's important to them, how our policies fit in and support the goals that they have. Mm -hmm. To do that, we want to be sharing the information that we have. And we work as advocates. And, you know, NRDC is not the only group. There are lots of other groups that have advocates. And what we want to do is take that information, whether it started at NRDC or the Sierra Club or EDF or somewhere else, and just share it with all the advocates so that they understand what those messaging best practices are. We want to add into the mix through the Climate Advocacy Lab that there are other perspectives. Um, and the Advocacy Lab has done a great job of including social scientists, right? So it's not just policy experts. It's not just advocates. It's not just communication experts within these NGOs. There are academic social scientists who are coming in and saying, there's another layer, folks. You can't just determine what's going to work based on demographics. We need to understand the psychographics. We need to understand this other context of where people enter into the conversation and what motivates their behavior. So it's really a great, I think, exercise in trying to leverage things that have worked and then have conversations where the advocates and the scientists can share and ask questions and say, I'm not seeing this pan out. Can you explain to me why? So, so the audience is primarily advocates and advocacy groups, not the general public or politicians or... That's correct yeah. at this point. And it's, you know, it may grow to be that, but this, you know, and trust me when I say there are a lot of advocates. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And there are advocates of all different um, all different levels of sophistication, all different levels of um, outreach themselves, different regions, different subjects. So to actually have some coordination among them is an enormous value and maybe not coordination like... Um, political coordination, but just informational coordination makes mm -hmm. a huge difference. Because the last thing I think we would want is to have one group saying, um, you know, in, in one region of the country saying, this is what's going on with climate change. And another group saying something contradictory, trying to make their own points, but actually sort of um, breaking down the communication and the acceptance of the climate consensus. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's what it is, right? It's really a lab where questions can be asked and ideas thrown on the wall and see what sticks. And then here, what are people experiencing on the ground in these different regions? Because everyone's experience is unique and taking that into consideration. Uh, it's really a fantastic tool for the advocates. Yeah, we had a really interesting talk a few years ago now. Um, uh, Dorothy Barnett from... Um, I believe Kansas and uh, Steve Smith, who uh, runs a group called the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, uh, based in Knoxville, Tennessee, and and part of the conversation was about how do you talk about climate in regions where you really can't talk about climate, climate change, of course. Um, and I'm wondering if 
if you as a communications expert have a thought on on that question. How do you how do you talk differently about climate change, about renewable energy, about clean air in places like Knoxville or Kansas or versus San Francisco or here in New Haven? Well, I think that you have different levels of understanding and you also have uh, different needs. And so you look at those first. You say, who am I talking to? What is their understanding? And what's important to them? Now, we have, you know, reams and reams of survey and polling data that tell us that with the sort of the membership base and the initiated, you know, global warming resonates more than climate change in terms of the actual semantics. But Also when you, a researcher here at <laughs> um, But when you get into wanting to understand how to move people, Usually, if you're talking about a place like, say, Tennessee versus Connecticut or California, there are different issues. And so you want to start with understanding where those folks are. And then it may be that it is that there's a boon for renewable energy development in their local agriculture. I'm making that up, but let's just use that as an example. That's where you would start because, again, you're talking about something that is local you're talking about something that has economic benefits. You know, these are all the things that are the sort of um, hallmarks of let's engage in this conversation as opposed to starting with a debate point where you know people don't agree. It's sort of like you're shutting the conversation mm-hmm. down before it starts. So I want to change focus just a little bit because I know that one of your one of your issues that you're very interested in is marine protection, marine conservation. Climate change obviously is a is a major issue there, but I'm wondering what other major threats are going on with marine conservation that you're focused on right now and how different the sort of getting people active on those issues is from getting people active on an issue that's as ubiquitous as climate change. Well, I think that um, ocean and marine issues, you know, they're very near and dear to my heart. And I'm someone who spends a lot of time in the water, on the water, under the water. So, you know, it goes back to the things that I'm seeing with my own eyes, which is something that I think everyone can relate to. Maybe not everyone can relate to being underwater, but when they start to see the impacts with their own eyes, I think that really changes the way that they think about the challenges that we face. And with marine conservation, I think there's this great opportunity, but there's also this challenge where, you know, beneath the surface, maybe some people know what that is. If you're a, a scuba diver or a free diver or you're a fisherman who spends a lot of time on the water. But if you don't, you just assume it's this huge, vast resource that is undeniably powerful, but you're actually not seeing all the things that are deteriorating and that are degrading. And so I think you have to say, as a communicator who who's concerned with these things, Let's enter into the conversation around policies where there's a connection for those people. So maybe it's about tourism, or maybe it's about seafood. It's about food and those choices. Um, Because if you're trying to sort of get people inspired and capture their imagination, the ocean and all of its visuals are a really powerful thing. But because they are so powerful at the same time, it's hard for people to accept that it's in peril, yeah. that it's fragile, and that as an ecosystem, that you know one slight change affects the whole system. Yeah, um, you know, you said something in there that I thought was really interesting, and, and maybe think of a catchphrase. You can use it if it's a good one. But yeah, um, you know, people see the ocean, they recognize 
the ocean for all its power, but they don't really see what's going on sort of beneath the surface. And of course, we've got a saying, seeing the forest for the trees. And we recognize even in the case, in the case of climate change, of ecological destruction, you, know, you can see a big green mass of trees. But when you look at them more closely, are they the same trees that were there 50 years ago? Are they healthy? Is there an understory? But it's the same thing for the ocean. It's very easy to look at the ocean and say, um, say that looks like a big blue, big green you know, sheer mass to me, but see below that and what's going on in the reefs with the fish. So maybe seeing the ocean for the fish. Is, is anybody using that or did I just come up with something brilliant? I think you might have just come yeah. up with something brilliant. Okay. You can have that if you want it. <laughs> um, so, and tell me a little bit about the work that you're, you're actually doing on marine issues these days, because I know you're on the National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council and the, the president of the Greater Fairlands uh, Association. So what is, what's that all about? Uh, so while we dive into the ocean area, <laughs> pun intended. Um, let me um, give a shameless plug for Please. NRDC. Um, they actually have a fantastic film coming out called Sonic Seas. A colleague of mine, Daniel Heinerfeld, uh, directed and produced in conjunction with a lot of people, a film about marine mammals, whales in particular, and what's happening with respect to um the sonic pollution in, in, in underwater and how that impacts these whales. And so that isn't an area that I'm working on. But again, it's something where people may not be familiar with all the things happening, but they can identify and be in awe of and care about whales. So it's a great entry point for people to learn more about the ecosystem, the human interaction, the impact of the work that we're doing as humans on this critical habitat. So with respect to the Greater Farallons Association and the National Marine Sanctuary uh, Advisory Council that I sit on, um, the United States has these wonderful national marine sanctuaries all around the country that uh, protect really special places. And a lot of folks don't understand what the designation is, but one of the key protections is that um, you can't drill for oil in a marine sanctuary. And then there are other permitted activities that are allowed, whether that's science, sometimes with specific regulations, commercial fishing. So other things do happen within the sanctuary, and it's definitely a place where people can recreate. And my role on the advisory council is to serve as both a recreational user and a conservation seat. So I have those hats on when we're dealing with issues that will affect how the public gets to interact with the sanctuary. And the Sanctuary Advisory Council also has, you know, uh, business seats and commercial seats. There's a youth seat. So they're, they're making sure that they have the stakeholders from the public that can represent those perspectives and those voices. Um, the Greater Farallons Association happens to be a nonprofit arm for the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary mm -hmm. in Northern California. And what we really do is promote programs that help support the sanctuary goals. So we do a lot of citizen science. We have volunteers doing beach watch. We go into the classrooms with programs like limpets so that we're teaching and bringing along the future stewards of this great, amazing natural resource from a very young age. That's great. That, that actually is a perfect segue to my next question, uh, which is marine sanctuaries, for all their value, are harder for 
individuals to engage in than, for instance, a national park, right, or a national forest. They're just harder to get to for some people. They're, it's, they're, it's more expensive to get to them, et cetera. Or, or maybe I'm wrong, and if that's the case, please say so. But So it sounds like this is some of the things you do to engage people in what's otherwise sort of a far-off place. So, so is that an important consideration when thinking about how to manage and preserve these marine sanctuaries? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the um, the Farallons is now called the Greater Farallons because mm-hmm. we just got an expansion. Um, Congratulations. That, thank you. <laughs> thank you to the administration. I think it's really important that folks begin to understand that these are their sanctuaries. These belong to the community. This is a public resource. And to the degree that we can get them excited and engaged in different programs really gives them that ownership and empowers them to be a part of it. So whether that is a student in a classroom or someone who's retired and is collecting data simply by walking the same beach every month, you know, each month of the year, you know, there are great ways for people to get involved. If you're living somewhere where you're not on the coast, there are all kinds of really wonderful resources through various channels, whether that is uh, video and digital content on you know, YouTube and our Facebook pages, so that you can learn about what's happening in those sanctuaries and how they're actually impacting you. When you're protecting the marine resource and you're creating viable habitat for this system that is basically providing everyone with food, oxygen, you know, they it's the lifeblood of why we live on planet Earth. It's a great way for people to feel like they have a stake and can be a part of the solution. That's great. Well, I think we that's a perfect last word. So why don't we leave it there? And Francesca, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.